Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Ludivine Brock, the author of Ordinary Workers, Vichy, and the Holocaust, French Railwaymen and the Second World War. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Hi there, Ludivine. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on Vichy and the Holocaust? So I'm, uh, I'm French, uh, and I, I did my university in the UK, in Britain. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing my, my undergrad, I got really interested in the history of the Holocaust. So when I did my postgrad uh, degree, I kind of wanted to pursue that angle. And so I, I, I very quickly became interested in, in the Holocaust in, in France, which I had actually never learned about as a, as a student hmm. in high school. And a particular question arose in, in one of my readings just before my master's, which was about uh, the role of railwaymen in the French resistance. And the question was one posed by Morrison Paxton, who wrote this quite groundbreaking uh, book on France and and the Jews under Vichy. Mm -hmm. And the question was, you know, why if French railway workers, the cheminots, had resisted so profusely during the occupation, why, and blowing up so many trains, you know, sabotaging all these German transports, why had they never done anything to the Jewish convoys? Mm. And I found that question really interesting. As a French person who grew up in France, who's not from a railway background, I had this this vision of Chemino, which was one. There was obviously this legacy of resistance, um, and also one of you know activism and strikes. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how how it began. It began around this question, and as I started to explore it during my doctoral research, I, I quickly realized that that my interest went far beyond um, answering this specific question. Behind this question lies a history of a, a group of workers. Mm-hmm. This history is actually the, the meatier, juicier part. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want us to come back to that. I am curious, though, Ludivine, you know, as somebody who is French and has come to, at these questions, both with your kind of, you know, experience growing up in France, if, if you have any thoughts about pursuing the study of French history in the UK, like whether you think that that's had a, an impact on the way that you think about not just the place where you're from, but how you do the history of the place where you're from? That's a great question. And I think a lot of, a lot of when I first started this project, a lot of the French historians I met all said, well, you couldn't do this in France. <laughs> this is a little bit about my personal history, but basically I'm French, but when I was six, I moved to America. And that's how I learned English. And I lived there for, for five years. And then I came back to an international school in, in Paris. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually never really fully in the French educational system. Mm-hmm. I was always, I was either in American primary, I learned to read and write in English. And then I was in an international, very international environment with, um, at an international high school. Mm-hmm. I think my approach, you know, is always something of a slight outsider, mm-hmm. but also I'm also outside the railway community. And actually, a lot of people who who write about the railway history have tend to have ties, or about the Holocaust tend to have. You know, I had neither. I had no Jewish family. I had no family from. Uh, you know, linked to the railways. People were always like, "Why are you doing this? You don't even sound French." Uh, because I this, <laughs> this really slight um, Anglo-Saxon accent that I've never gotten rid of. And in certain ways, that was quite liberating uh, because I think that people 
when I went to interview people, I mean, they never thought I was French and I can just kind of let them think what they wanted. But I was this, I was a a British scholar, Hmm. but also being educated in British academia after in higher education. I think I came at, at Vichy and also actually specifically the history of Vichy has a reputation for um, scholars from the from beyond France mm-hmm. posing perhaps slightly more sensitive questions. Right. And you have obviously Robert Paxton's book, uh, which caused you know the Paxton uh, Paxtonian revolution. Right. So there is this kind of legacy, and I, I'm sure all these ways in, impacted on how how I came about the subject and mm-hmm. how I didn't feel that it was a problem touching something that was which was so sensitive. And actually, at times later, when I came to talk to my about my project during my doctoral studies with certain French audiences, I realized that actually it was so much touchier. And I was in a very safe place in in the UK mm-hmm. talking about my work. People were extremely receptive. But actually, when I went to France, when I went to smaller towns, telling railway workers the history, the, the questions I was asking myself and, and the archives I was finding, that they actually weren't always very receptive at all. Sure. You open the book, Ludivine, with a discussion of the SNCF affair. Yes. A set of post-war and continuing debates about the role of the Société Nationale des Chemins de Fer Français. We'll just go with SNCF from now on, with the role of the SNCF in the Holocaust. So, I mean, I realize the intricacies of these debates over a long period of time. It would be very difficult for you to summarize this, but I'm going to ask you to just give us kind of a brief overview of the SNCF affair, as you call it, you know, thinking about that in France, but maybe also referencing, if you can, why this affair has a more international significance as well. Yeah, I, well, I think this this case certainly has an international significance, and it's almost kind of where it starts. Mm-hmm. It's because I see it very much linked to the Holocaust memory boon in the 1990s. To kind of give a very quick overview, immediate post-war, you have a, the need to reconstruct Europe. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people not looking towards the past, but rather looking towards the future. And also at that point, very little understanding of what the Holocaust actually was. In the 1960s, you have the Eichmann trial. You have the first uh, full history of, of the Holocaust, which emerges. So you start to have kind of these new readings of the Second World War, which aren't just about, well, certainly from Fran- the French perspective, about resisting the, war, uh, the, the, the occupation. And as the decades go on, you have more and more social and political changes in France, which means that people are starting to ask more troubling questions, such as, were you only resistors? Wasn't there an extent of collaboration? And here you have, in the 70s and 80s, lots of writings which are starting to expose the extent, the huge extent, of Franco-French collaboration with the Germans. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely disruptive to these kind of memory legacies of the resistance. By the time you reach the 1990s, the Holocaust is a much more uh, well-understood part of of the history of the Second World War. And with more knowledge about the Holocaust come many more questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so all of a sudden you start to step away from the ideas that it was just the Nazis and you start to look at more local collaboration, local anti-Semitism. Um, in Eastern Europe, for instance, but also, as we see in France, you look, start to look at the role of banks in, in the process of Aryanization. Um, you start to look at industry and its role in the genocide. And the SNCF kind of gets caught up and becomes part of these questions in, in a very natural way, if, if you think about it. In the late 1990s, some people in, in France Uh, a few people, a very small uh, portion of people in France and in America are asking themselves um, about their experience in deportation. I mean, not everybody was taken to the camps in France. Sometimes people were transferred from the southern zone to the northern zone. And what their experience of of this concentrationary universe was really started with the SNCF and and its cattle cars, because the cattle Mm. cars, I mean, we, we know these are such these are huge symbols of the Holocaust. Sure. Um, whose cattle cars were they? And, you know, it turns out they weren't German, they were French. And so there's this uh, story of a U.S.-based court case that you discuss in the introduction. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So in the late 1990s, what you have is more and more questions about the SNCF's role. And also in New York, a lawyer who has taken a particular interest in in the SNCF's role in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And she has quite a few clients 
who want to bring a claim against the SNCF for um, crimes against humanity, essentially, because we, we know very well the conditions in the cattle cars were inhumane. Um, mm. And whether that was transferring people from southern France to, to the Paris area or from, from the Paris area to Auschwitz and, and the extermination camps. So they tried to bring this court case in America, but obviously for a list of legal reasons, this case cannot be actually tried. Mm. It's incredibly hard to try. If you think about it, you know, if this is an, uh, a trial in America about crime that took place in a different country mm-hmm. against people who aren't or weren't at the time American and by a foreign company. And also to accuse a company of a crime against humanity mm. was not possible. So th- what you end up having from about 2000 onwards for the next almost 15 years are attempts both in America and then in France to bring the SNCF to court mm-hmm. and to win a claim that, you know, that SNCF committed crimes against humanity and owes payment to, its, to the victims uh, who, who it oppressed during the war. And in France, from the SNCF's perspective, this case doesn't make sense Mm. because they were under the orders of the French state. The SNCF was part of the French state. It was a publicly owned company. So you'll have a number of different ways in America that evolve over the 15 years of attacking the SNCF. And one of them after around 2010 is to try to ban the SNCF from placing bids to build high-speed railways Mm. in certain American states, for instance, California. So by banning the SNCF from even bidding for the contracts to build these these high-speed railways, you're causing a lot of economic damage to this company. Uh, But eventually, almost 15 years after the claims against the SNCF begin, the French state ends up making a, a very big payment of $60 million to victims of the Holocaust in the United States from France. And it's never the SNCF who will pay this. This is very important. It's mm-hmm. seen as the responsibility of the French state still this crime. And also this settles the question of the current corporate issue, which was after the settlement was made, the SNCF was able to would be able to bid for contracts in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have at the same time claims that are being brought against Uh, the SNCF in France itself, but they are much, they escalate much faster in America and become much more political in America than than in France. You begin the book, Ludivine, with this affair. And and I'm just wondering, do you feel like that really shaped the way that you approached this work, whether the legal cases are settled or not, um, just the ongoing uh, sense of these moral and legal questions? Was that a big presence for you as a, as a researcher and a writer? Definitely. And yeah. I think this is why the term Holocaust is in my book title. Mm. Because ultimately, I feel that the moral questions, which A, were at the, at the beginning, the first question that I really posed myself when launching into this project. Mm-hmm. But then they shaped so much of how I saw the archives, how I read the archives, how other pe- people read my work, how other people discussed the SNCF. What became very obvious to me was that I had to distance myself from my own moral issues Mm -hmm. and try to look at things as much as a historian, as a professional historian, as I could. And at times, I mean, in the book, you, you've obviously read the book, but for those who haven't, is I do not accuse the SNCF of complicity in genocide. Mm. I kind of stay completely on the fence, not just on the fence, but actually I come to the conclusion, looking at the archives, exploring the corporate archives especially, but also the interviews that I ran and kind of asking myself this question more and more frequently, I realized that the question of morality did not feature in the same way at that time. And this is what's so important for historians of Vichy. And I think most of the historians of Vichy I know do this is we kind of strip away the the hindsight. My ethical issues did not exist Hmm. in 1940s for railway workers. They did not see things that way. And that's, that's the story I want to tell. You just noted, you know, the significance of your use of the term Holocaust in the title of the book. And I guess I want to ask you about the other terms in the in the title of the book we already touched on on Vichy but I want to ask you a little bit about that title ordinary and the way in which it seems anyway like a pretty deliberate reference to Christopher Browning's work and uh, maybe some other work on everyday life and bottom-up histories of the Holocaust and of this period could you say a little bit about that I mean Christopher Browning's book 
Ordinary Men was one of my favorite texts as mm. a student. And what I really didn't want to do using this title was to uh, let on that I was in any way uh, writing a book that could equate with his uh, groundbreaking work. But I thought that his term was really useful for me. Uh, ordinary work is associated with ordinary men, which is basically about stepping away from the demonization of perpetrators of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to show with with my shemino is that we need to step away from demonizing the shemino, which was becoming more and more frequent in both French and, and um, American press, but also from an overglorification of them, uh, because this was always the big memory battle in the decades uh, after after the occupation in France. On the other hand, ordinary also hints to, as you say, historical approaches to everyday life and bottom-up history, approaches which I adopt throughout my book. Mm -hmm. What's interesting with railway workers is that they're slightly not ordinary workers. <laughs> they are a group of, of professional workers who have, especially in the 19th and early early 20th century, a slightly separate identity mm -hmm. to other workers. And, and that's really important to understand. Actually, that's one of the main points of my book, that they have this professional ethos, these codes of conduct, which are not replicated throughout the working class. Actually, often in the history, they have set them aside from general working class issues right. because they have a unique professional role. However, under Vichy, their concerns become more tied to those of the broader working class. Um, and in many ways, I think this period allows them to connect with the more activist parts of working class society mm -hmm. at the time and create this unity this idea of unity amongst the left and of workers, which you have Im immediately after the liberation, and which, well, quickly disappears, but which also will change how they approach making claims for improving their working conditions, for, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so they become slightly more ready to adopt uh, the causes of the, of the wider working class, is, is not to see themselves as completely separate from other working class questions and issues. You make the point, Ludivine, early on that the project here is to bring together working class history and the history of the Holocaust during the Second World War, that you want to complicate things like collaboration, resistance, deportation, and really explore issues of class consciousness, class solidarity and community, class struggle, economic pressures. I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about how and why the histories that have been on one side of these commemorative barriers have been in various kinds of tension with the project of doing a working class history. And then I guess as a second part of that question, I would just ask you if you could elaborate a little bit on what models you might point to or frameworks that you were working with as you wrote this book in terms of working class history, like who are your, uh, you know, we talk about Browning and Paxton and, you know, in terms of the history of Vichy and the Holocaust. But in terms of your ways of thinking about the working class and working class history, who are you thinking about? So what's really interesting, in post-war France, it becomes very important in order to, to define yourself, to identify yourself, but also to, to identify others and to understand where others are coming from. The big question is, did you resist or did you not? Mm -hmm. And being a chemino, um meant being a resistor. What's actually interesting in looking at the history of, of the Shemino under the occupation is that not all of them resisted. That's an absolute definite. Those who did, did not at all de uh, resist in the same ways and for the same reasons. Mm. So what you end up is having this kind of mosaic, this tableau of actions, of resistance, of defiance, of dissidence, which are all much more complicated. In contrast, your professional identity uh, I found said a lot more, explained a lot more about Shemino history than whether they did or did not resist. And it's through their professional identity that you can understand the decisions that they made, uh, whether it was to resist, whether it was to try to adapt to the conditions under Vichy, whether it was to befriend uh, other German railway workers, whether it was to steal from their employer. I wonder if we could talk a little bit, Ludivine, about your sources for this project. I mean, you've mentioned a few different types of things already, but if you could just tell us a little bit about the kinds of archives that you consulted, what other types of sources you used for this project, if there were any materials that you were able to access that, you know, surprised you. 
Yeah, the SNCF has corporate archives mm-hmm. in Le Mans. I looked through dozens and dozens and dozens of boxes sure. uh, trying to understand the history of, of not only this period, but actually a, a longer history of, of railway workers, which was actually necess- very important for me in order to understand the Chemino under Vichy. You also had a range of other sources from the National Archives, uh, which had, there was this wonderful collection of post-war testimonies, which had been collected from hundreds of, of railway workers talking about their experiences in the war. Um, you had the documents, the, the archives of the, of the personnel, of the SNCF personnel in the south of France, in Béziers, mm-hmm. which led to some really surprising findings, especially in pensions, because that's where I've, I tracked a lot of the Jewish Shemino I looked at a little mm-hmm. bit more closely. I only found out about their existence because uh, after the war, the SNCF didn't know who to give their pensions to, to their re- remaining family. So here you un- unravel a, a history of genocide through documents about pensions, mm-hmm. essentially, which is quite fascinating. I used local archives in the south of France, especially to get a bigger, better picture of local strikes and working class protests. I did lots of interviews with railway workers who were kind of scattered all over France and had very, very differing roles in the SNCF during the occupation. How hard was that to get people to speak with you? And were there some specific challenges in that process? Well, first of all, I put, I put an ad in a paper. I put an ad in the SNCF paper, La Vie du Rai, asking for witnesses to come forward. I only put one ad in and I got about 15, 20 people who responded and I organized interviews around that. And I think as a woman, this was an eye-opener on, on gender and the role of gender in interviews. I mean, mm-hmm. I once brought my well boyfriend at the time and now husband because we were on holiday and obviously like most good academics I brought my work with me and I was like oh well we're going to this place well I actually have to interview someone there (laughs) you should join me it'll be really interesting (laughs) (laughs) the recipe for many a wondrous vacation (laughs) and I interviewed this man and this was the first time ever that I had I mean not that I have interviewed hundreds of people but it was the first out of the interviews that I did, it was the only ever reference to sex huh. that was made. And it became very clear that the person who was being interviewed was talking to, more to my husband than to me. Huh. Even though my husband doesn't speak, I mean, he speaks, uh, you know, a decent French, but he wasn't asking the questions. And he started to kind of boast about sexual prowess <laughs> under under the occupation, how he was getting all these girls and et cetera, et cetera. And this was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but likewise, often when I would interview couples. The the wife would tell me sometimes different stories to her husband, mm. uh, sometimes taking over completely, uh, or sometimes the tone would change when she would come in and offer me some food, uh, and it would become a bit more informal. And here I could maybe tease out uh, a little bit more of the complexity of people's lives. I mean, I was going to bring this up later, and, and we can certainly come back to it, but it is a very male-dominated project. Absolutely. I mean, the railways is a really, really male-dominated space Mm. some women had rules they had rules which were not physical Mm. or they had involvement in the kind of social or medical arrangements but really if you are a Shermino's wife that's exactly what you are especially you know in the 30s and 40s you know they were traveling across the country they were working on long shifts you know sometimes at nighttime so in order to have a family you had to have one person constantly at home and this was the wife Um, and the essence that there was this wonderful little drawing that I came across in uh, from an SNCF newspaper in, in the late 30s of this woman um, who's kind of doing all these roles and she's she's telling the children to be quiet when when her husband comes home and and she's making sure the dinner is on the table for when he arrives and and this was how the SNCF was saying this is the perfect Shemino wife this is how you should behave you know it's extremely patriarchal I'm wondering about the scope of the book Nudivine that you know working on the SNCF really allows this kind of national perspective but I'm wondering about the regional differences that come out is there anything really striking that you would draw our attention to in terms of differences in different parts of France during this period? Definitely. I mean, France was a a territory divided, Mm -hmm. as you know, under Vichy. So obviously, there are huge territorial, uh, regional differences in in terms of experience based on the occupation. I mean, this is also one of the reasons I thought that looking at railway workers was so interesting, because they were one of the only, the the very few people who had the right to cross the demarcation line because of their work. Mm -hmm. So as France is completely divided into all these sections, the one thing 
that keeps it together is its railway system. Um, And if you look at a map from above of of the SNCF, you see all of the the lines emanating from Paris and going across the country. And it was this was the only constant continuing link, legal link that that was ongoing in the occupation. At the same time, there are really big regional differences. First of all, Paris, you know, Mm -hmm. there's Paris and then there's the rest. And this is very true in terms of the railways. I mean, Napoleon, when he was toying with uh, the idea of dreams of railways, he wanted Paris to be the center of Europe. You, you know, he had this dream of where railway lines would emanate from Paris and he would have control over the whole continent. And all ra- railway lines do do emanate from Paris. I don't know if, if you've ever tried to travel from, let's say, Auvergne mm. to uh, Côte d'Azur, but very difficult. Right. You best way is to go back via Paris. So this means that the Paris region in itself is unique with the density of railway traffic and of railway workers. You then have smaller railway clusters across France. And these are very important. These are very important up north, for instance, uh, where you have these big railway centers. In some other areas, such as the southwest of France, you have far fewer railways. Um, And here, so you see a difference, actually, in the involvement. I mean, I was looking at some tracks from a group of railway workers in that that region, who were actually very pro-Vichy. They weren't pro-German, but they were tolerant of Germans, and especially they were uh, Pétainist. And this is probably a very different story to the one that you would have in a big railway town in northern France. Uh, But there's also a lot about how regional issues had a different impact on the smaller communities that were in the southwest of France. I'm just wondering, Nadevine, about the structure and organization of the book. I mean, things proceed across these nine, well, an introduction in nine parts, including an epilogue, uh, roughly chronologically, but you also sort of zoom in on particular thematics along the way. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how you put it together. I mean, it begins before the war and then kind of ends with the end of the war and then looks to the memory of the of the period of the war and the occupation. So that's there. But what about some of the other choices that you made in terms of how to structure and organize the book? One thing I wanted to step away from was just doing a, a chronological story, just doing uh, chapters about resistance and collaboration. Sure. Also, something that my supervisor, Ruth Harris, from New College uh, at Oxford, she had her, her books about first on, on Lourdes and then on, on Dreyfus mm. had really inspired me in terms of their structure of much smaller sh- chapters than usual. Mm-hmm. In the end, I decided to have chapters which highlighted a few of the specific points that I found particularly fascinating about the uh, Chemino, mm-hmm. the relationship to German railway workers, so the Benoff, their, uh, ex- uh, the experience of theft within the railways, uh, which is my, my fourth chapter, and, and also the issue of sabotage specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about what your main points of emphasis are in the pre World War II history with respect to the Cheminot as a community and their social and political consciousness? So the railways are born in France, really, in the mid-19th century. You know, the first railway workers in France were actually British uh, because nobody knew how to, <laughs> what a railway looked like, a train looked like in France at the time. But towards the late 19th century, as the railways are spreading, as they're make, building more and more across France, uh, you start to realize the importance a, of the railways for military purposes, and therefore of the railway workers, because without the workers, the railways are nothing. And this is an idea which which kind of escalates into the First World War and also to the Second World War. Um, and in fact, the railway workers start to see themselves, and this is really important, as workers who are not just workers. They're not just skilled workers, even. They start to see themselves as workers who are vital to their survival of the nation, as soldiers of peacetime, uh, of industry. And without them, that the country would would collapse. So things like sabotaging, industrial sabotage, which starts to happen in the late 19th century, are for railway workers completely contradictory to their very, very rigid vision of security. You know, running through this kind of professional ethos of the importance of security, the importance of of scheduling, of timetables, also the the insularity a bit of their community. And and all that feeds into questions of of theft, protest, and sabotage, but also to um, uh, relations with, with Germans and Jews uh, under Vichy. Yeah, I want to ask you more about the relationship between the Chemino and Germany and Germans. Um, so you chart in the book, you know, the numbers of Chemino who went to work in Germany after uh, 1940. And 
also this sense that uh, French railway workers had of a kind of professional bond with their German counterparts. So could you say a little bit more about that relationship between French and German railway workers and to what extent it is or isn't a model for how we might think about Franco-German relations in other types of work uh, or domains during the period of the occupation? I think the link between the French people and Germans was not straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not just one of, of resistance or just co- collaboration. There's various sorts of accommodation and adaptation and adjustment and cohabitation which are taking place. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they interchange over, over the course of, of the occupation. Uh, and then you have this, not just Schumino, but a number of different people in France. It's, you know, this kind of the bonds of language, sometimes a shared language, because French people, uh, many knew German and Germans knew, knew French too. This could create bonds, but also... French railway workers see themselves as almost slightly isolated to other working class uh, people in France. But with German railway workers, they have this professional bond. And this professional bond is is really key. And often when Schumino are going over to work in Germany for forced labor, one of the things that they write home about, uh, they're not saying we're, you know, I love my German colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, not, it's not so clear, but it mm. is saying the, the best part of my day is being able to work on, at least I'm able to work on the trains. You know, at least I'm able to carry out, continue doing my profession. Whereas you had a lot of people in the forced labor service who, ha- you know, were in professions that they had never done before. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't want to imply that French and German railway workers were great buddies, uh, mm. under occupation. But there was a certain respect and understanding that you kind of get the sense of in the archives and in and the and kind of in the post-war testimonies where people were immediately ex- talking about the, what they had experienced in Germany, for instance. So let's talk, Ludivine, about theft, protest, and sabotage. And in particular, the point that you're making here in this history of workers, that the enemy isn't always Germany or Vichy, but that the forms of resistance that you track in the book are often specifically a kind of worker resistance, uh, resistance to the company, to management, to uh, working conditions, to some of those kinds of things. I found these, this group of archives about disciplinary councils, in regional disciplinary councils in, in the SNCF. And I took many, many photographs, and I spent a long, long time looking at each single entry, at who had been brought before the disciplinary council, what date, why, and what, was, what happened to that person. I then started to see a pattern emerge. And the pattern was that more and more, there was a question of theft in the railways, theft from the SNCF, so that railway workers were stealing from the SNCF. And I found this absolutely fascinating. Already, theft in wartime is often touched on in history Mm -hmm. books, but very rarely the focus, because theft is so difficult to identify. Mm -hmm. First of all, I mean, I, this was only the people who were brought before disciplinary council. You don't, have no idea of the cases that weren't caught. So you only get a slice. You can only get an idea of things. It's very little certainty. Theft in wartime is linked to uh, deteriorating conditions. You know, you need butter, you need coal. And the truth is, the railways was a great place to find these things because products were being transported all over France because they had huge reserves of coal. You know, all these all these things. You know, wine. There's a loads of theft of wine. Um, they were stealing bicycles. Uh, there was a horse-drawn carriage which was stolen, which I don't know how that story... is like one of those unexplainable moments. <laughs> but you had, you had this kind of huge increase in theft. And histories of wartime would look at perhaps at theft as a reaction to wartime. Histories of working classes by Robin Kelly, by Selena Todd, look at dissidents such as... Or acts of defiance, which include theft, but mm-hmm. which are much more um, hidden... Uh, these subaltern activities, mm-hmm. they see them not just as reactions to circumstances, but actually as reactions towards their, the professional authority. The reality is railway workers didn't really steal that much from the railways, it seems, before. Mm. I tried to look at some some earlier records of disciplinary councils, and here the, the type of of action for which people were being disciplined was much more varied, not just focused on theft. So what you see is a specific spike of theft, which happens during this period. But you also see a spike 
in other forms of protests of like small strikes and you inevitably see a, an increase in sabotage and all of these these acts of defiance which before would have betrayed the kind of code of conduct that many railway workers lived by hmm. uh, because you know they they want they don't want to harm the railways this was the uh, important thing in the late 1930s and tw- early 20th centuries you don't want to harm the people on the railways you don't want to harm the the machines you know one shimino interviewed joked that he had loved his locomotive more than his wife and i think he was barely joking you know they have a real attachment to to, to these things and to to what they're working for and so things such as theft and later protests and gatherings and hmm. and really going against with the sns is telling them and then even taking the step to physically sabotage the railways that shows a a change in attitude and i don't think it's just a change of attitude that's linked to the to the occupation because i think these working class histories of um subaltern activities weapons of the week Mm -hmm. are vital in in giving us a, a key to unlocking this type of action i have to say i mean not knowing very much about railway work uh, or railway men and, and this history before reading the book, the idea that not only the safety for of colleagues and passengers, but also the love of the machines would have interfered with the desire or the willingness of railway workers to engage in more deliberate acts of sabotage that might have halted transport or movement. That came as a surprise to me. I mean, I suppose it shouldn't, but I, I mean, I thought that was a really, it's a really interesting point that you make in the book that, that the love of the machines would counteract to some extent the desire to, to break them, you know, towards some other end. Absolutely. And I kind of, I think at various points explaining this to, to other people, I kind of explained as, you know, a writer burning books. It's just counterintuitive. Mm. These trains, these rails are so big. They're so impressive. And I don't know if you've ever been very, very up close, not on a platform, but if you're on the ground up close to a, a locomotive, it is huge. It is very intimidating. And, you know, La Bête Humaine, uh, Zola's La Bête Humaine is, you know, obviously kind of embodying this monster of a train, which in a way, I think in the 19th century has to be tamed. And the railway workers learn to, by respecting the machine, they are themselves safe and they can provide for France. So you have this really interesting relationship between men and their professional tool. I want us to be sure to spend a little bit of time, Ludivine, talking about the actual role of SNCF workers in instances of persecution, deportation, the purging of Shamino, as well as, uh, you know, some of these themes and issues of uh, survival that you discuss uh, with respect to Jews who worked for the SNCF. So... The SNCF played a role in the Holocaust in many ways. It's just, it's a very simple question to answer. Of course it played a role. Mm-hmm. And there's no denying it. And whether Jews were being you know, transported to internment camps in France or they were being deported to concentration camps in Eastern Europe, SNCF uh, material was used. SNCF workers drove the trains at least to the border with Germany, mm-hmm. there is an evidence there that is undeniable and which speaks to the bureaucratic efficiency of genocide. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what I found, there is very little material in the SNCF archives about the Holocaust. The Holocaust, if you think that there's around 80 deportation convoys which leave France and go to the concentration extermination camps, there was more traffic than that in a day across France. So the portion of deportation trains is a needle in a haystack. Logistically, they're not the primary concern of railway directors or railway workers. Morally, they are a big question, but moral questions are not necessarily asked in the meetings of the SNCF administration. That does not mean that moral issues or questions weren't raised in people's personal lives. But it's very difficult to see in the SNCF archives themselves. What I did see eventually was that the SNCF was receiving orders either from Berlin or from Vichy in terms of the organization of the convoys. I mean, the decision of, you know, using cattle cars, for instance, it was not the SNCF who decided to deport Jews in cattle cars. This decision emanated from Berlin, even down to the, the buckets that were used for hygiene in the transfer cars from the southern zone to, to the northern zone. Uh, these were listed on the the things that should be prepared by, you know, lists that were, that, that were actually emanating from Laval. 
so their amount of control over the operation is almost minimal. The only kind of moments of interaction I noticed was about deciding they they get told we want trains that contain these these things that are made up of this number of convoys and that leave on these days, and then they adjust the times to make mm-hmm. sure, to put them into the kind of big timetable. One of the most fascinating archives I have seen throughout my career, actually, as a historian, was a file that I, I found in the archives in, in Roubaix of uh, Archives du Monde du Travail. And I was kind of looking at it to, to try to find some things, but I wasn't sure what I could find. And all of a sudden, I come across this letter emanating from a railway uh, regional director, SNCF regional director, saying, um, on uh, it was March 1943 or March 44. And Combournac, this, this director, says, um, on this date, uh, a train left Bourget-Drancy carrying over a thousand Jews. It left it this time. So obviously this is one of the major convoys going to Auschwitz. And an incident occurred. The incident that he refers to is not uh, the genocide at all. It is that one of the German officials who was there supervising the operation yelled and was aggressive towards a cheminot. Apparently there were issues, there were questions about, you know, the, the Germans had asked for it to be at this, at, to arrive at a certain time. And the, uh, the Cheminot thought that it was planned for an hour later. They had been told an, a different hour. And so they were fighting over this issue. And the German becomes extremely aggressive with this Cheminot. So Combonac, who's writing the letter, says, you know, this train deporting all these Jews, something unacceptable happened. This German, you know, yelled and attacked my, uh, a Cheminot, cannot except this kind of behavior from, from the Germans, you know, we are professionals. What's crazy is, obviously, was with hindsight, this is, you know, by far not the most important crime that's taking place here. But this letter spoke very interestingly to how professional concerns completely dominated, A, the archives, but also often many perspectives. Mm. How this person felt towards the deportations and that particular train, I don't know. I have seen a few testimonies of, of railway workers who were on site when Jews were being put onto the convoys. Mm-hmm. And they're all harrowing. I mean, I think that the reality was that Shemino, who, who saw these trains being formed, who saw them leaving, who, who then gathered the little notes that Jews were slipping through the planks, it's a really dreadful moment. Uh, but it is not a moment where they wish to sabotage a, a railway train. And, and that is just the, the fact of things. Neither do... Shemino ever sabotage a train deporting uh, forced labor workers or resistors. And this is a really important point to understand. This absence of sabotaging deportation trains is not just in regards to Jewish convoys. It is also in all the other convoys. There is not a single incident of Shemino protesting against a deportation. By the time that trains are being, you know, people are being deported, it is too late um, and what they do offer, and you see this in a number of, of memoirs, is often a support from a distance, maybe a look or picking up these notes and sending them off to these to the families. You know, these are the kind of these kind of human, humane systems of, of support. But otherwise, you know, there was, you know, very few Jewish people working for the SNCF at the time. I found a trace of, you know, about 25 of them. Uh, followed their trajectories. They had multiple trajectories. At times, they were helped by their colleagues. At times, this help was ineffective. At times, they weren't helped. And I think this just reflects a much broader attitude of society towards Jews uh, in France at the time. Is there a Shemino liberation story? Does the history of the Shemino make us think about the liberation in a different way? And or, you know, what is distinctive about the Shemino experience of, of the liberation? There's a lot of work about breaking down the myth of the liberation. So you see, you know, the, all the photos of men and women rejoicing in Paris. And, you know, now we know that actually it's a much more complicated history. Mm. There was the um, femme tendue, the shorn women. Mm-hmm. There were the purges. The history of, of the liberation for the Chemino, in many ways, reminds us that there is more than a kernel of truth in the idea of uh, united France at the time of liberation. Mm. By 44, you have more and more widespread active protest and strike and sabotage amongst the railway workers. More and more obvious 
reactions to engage in violent resistance or in other forms of resistance. You have the Shimino who are very involved in the insurrectional strikes in August 1944. And then you have the Shimino who immediately after the liberation, those at the head of the, of the unions after the liberation, say, right, right now it is no longer the time to ask for improving our working conditions, mm. which is actually something that was really important in their form of protest. You know, as, as you said earlier, one of the important things that I say in my book is that in, the, in this theft, in this protest, in this sabotage, it's showing a, a changing attitude towards the SNCF itself. And actually, in 1936, one of the reasons the work, the Shimino didn't go on strike was because they felt that they were really advancing mm. with private railway companies in coming to reaching good terms for employment. And in 1937-38, this is when the SNCF is nationalized. And this nationalization was kind of the pinnacle of of decades of of fighting for better working conditions. Mm -hmm. In 36-37-38, they think that the state can protect them against the bad working conditions. Under Vichy, they realize the state can't protect them. I feel there's a kind of unifying moment in in 43-44 where you have all these uh, they start to say we are against the Germans, we are against Vichy, and we are also against our our bosses, mm. um, the SNCF management. You know, they're all villains. They're all demonized uh, in the clandestine um, Shemino press. But immediately after the liberation, union leaders say, "Well, now we stop complaining. We've got work to do. Actually, we've got to rebuild this country." And this is true. This is you know, this is before the age of the of the, the roads and the airplanes until that point. I mean, the, the trains were by far the mm-hmm. most valuable asset of a nation. And so in order to rebuild this nation, you had to rebuild, first and foremost, the railways to let products and people flow again. And so this, this unifying the moment of unity is very important. What's so interesting is that a couple of years later, it all dissolves. Mm. Um, and here they realized that although there was this kind of euphoric, euphoric unity, actually their working conditions are still not good. They're not happy. And they lead the strikes in 47. And after the war, uh, Shemino are renowned for going on strike. And, you know, <laughs> I think we all know if, if we're traveling in France doing our, our archives in the summer, how SNCF's grève are yeah. famous and they're crippling, deeply crippling. Um, so that's a, diff- a completely different attitude in the post-war to pre-war attitudes. Um, so this experience of liberation, in one, on one hand, reminding us that it was more than a veneer of unity. There was an actual belief of a unifying moment, but that, but you know, the cracks appeared pretty swiftly afterwards to and to kind of increase this divisiveness. Right. So there is this shift in terms of activism. Is there a shift with the end of the war and in those post-war decades? where we can track or say something about uh, a change in direction or emphasis or allegiance or whatever with between the Shimino and various forms of organized politics. Like, I think one of the lessons of your book in these earlier decades is that things are a lot more complicated, that there's a conservatism in this segment of the working population that might surprise some people. Does that change with the war, I guess, with the end of the war? Does, can we say more about political or voting tendencies on the part of Shimino in the post-war period than we would in the period uh, before the end of the Second World War? Is there, are there trends like that with these changes in you know, willingness to engage in strikes and other forms of protest? I think what's so complicated to in approaching this story is how to understand the relationship between railway workers and especially communists mm. and uh, the Communist Party. And there's some great work that's been done by Tom Beaumont on this link in the interwar period. And the reality is we have no numbers, certainly not for the pre-war per- uh, pre-Second War period. And even when you have members of unions, to understand how deeply people feel, how committed they feel, to ideology is very difficult, especially also what happens afterwards after the war is whether you go on strike or not becomes this huge question in the SNCF, such that people who refuse to go on strike, who say, you know, I don't believe in the strike or something, will get attacked or bullied for their decision. And this is from talking to a couple of people working within the SNCF. This is still tendencies which go on. Mm-hmm. So you have these huge political divisions, but which I think are also much more complicated than just about politics. So yeah, so you don't have uh, exact numbers. I do 
in, in one sense, you have railway workers who are associated to the Communist Party, therefore to a kind of communist myth of resistance in Vichy. But again, this if you scratch the surface, you soon realize that it's a lot more complicated. So in the epilogue to the book, Ludivine, you come back to this question of memory. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you close the book and what your concluding thoughts are about Shamino memory? I wrote this book. I finished. Well, it took me 10 years to write. It took, took me 10 years to get it published, and it got published a couple of years ago. And at the time when I was writing the epilogue, it was very obvious to me that what I wanted to do was break the myth of, of resistance that was associated with Chemino that was dated to the immediate post-war period, mm-hmm. but also to challenge the recent demonization of this SNCF saying that they basically had committed a crime against humanity because there's a very big difference between organizing the genocide. And of course, this does not wash anyone's hands clean, but Mm -hmm. it's also very important to understand the hierarchical and bureaucratic process of the Holocaust in order to understand who are the perpetrators who are instigating this genocide. I finished this book very much tying it into the broader story of the Vichy syndrome that you went from a period of memorialization of resistance to a period of um, understanding collaboration and finally of confronting the realities of genocide and the Shimino get caught in all of this in the late 1990s and early 2000s. What's particularly interesting to me is also how the idea of rescue, because the question of, you know, why did the Shimino never sabotage is ultimately one of rescue. Why did railway workers never rescue the Jewish convoys, and that almost now we've gone from an era which is which was more interested in resistance to one which is more interested in rescue. That the resistors of yesterday are the rescuers of today. That rescuing it's no longer did you resist during the war, it's did you save Jews during the war. Uh, so that's I think much more the the question that's posed in the past couple of decades. Uh, there's also I think a real. And this is perhaps a more recent uh, reflection I've had. I don't know if you've seen this film, Sarah's Key. No, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. It's, it's, I find that certain films of the Second World War really allow a broader audience to connect much more deeply with um, and emotionally with this period. And then that brings on people being more interested in reading maybe more specific texts, et cetera. So I don't want to just completely demolish the film, but I think the film is also extremely simplistic in its approach. It essentially upholds the idea that uh, that the French are in denial of their history, that they refuse to accept uh, their history of collaboration, and not least their collaboration in genocide. And then you have this, I think, yeah, she's American, and her husband is French. And she, the American uh, character, uh, is basically the truth teller. And she bursts these, these walls, and she tells as it is and reveals the truth of what actually happened. And I think that that format is taking on, to some extent, I, I already mentioned it, uh, a valid point is that often scholars from outside France have, have been extraordinarily successful in kind of breaking down the walls of kind of French historical academy and public, public memory. Um, such as Paxton. But I think that to say that that's still the case today is to oversimplify. I don't think that the French are necessarily in denial anymore about what happened. I think the French narratives, certainly from historians, some absolutely spectacular histories of the Vichy period are, are being written by, by French historians. Exhibitions, there was an exhibition at the Hôtel de Ville uh, in Paris a couple of years ago, all about collaboration. Um, I think France is, you know, much more coming to willing to discuss its past. And in some ways, I feel that this is mirrored in the story of the SNCF affair, where you have this idea that the trials in America, which which are demonizing the SNCF, um, are putting things in black and white terms, and that the French are just refusing to, or the SNCF or the French were just refusing to accept the reality of the horror that, that had happened. Mm. And I think my, my book tells a, a story, which is certainly not in terms of memory, that's, that's not really what's happened, that, that the accusing the SNCF of these crimes, it was in many ways legally impossible, but also historically short-sighted. Um, when you look at the historical, when you, because when you try to look at the bigger picture in terms of, of historical understanding, you see that things were not at all so black and white. And so, yes, I find that format of the f- French in denial about their, their history is kind of eroded a bit. So the book has been translated into French, yeah? 
know what I mean? Yeah. And I know just, well, I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> and I and we have common followers and friends on Twitter, so I, I kind of see you. Uh, I mean, I know you're on parental leave now, but I've seen, you know, ads for your talks and things over the last couple of years. And I guess I'm just wondering, given everything we've talked about, yeah, what thoughts you have you might want to share about the responses you've gotten to the book uh, as you've kind of interrogated some of these tropes and habits and ways of thinking about Vichy and the Holocaust and the SNCF. What are some of the responses you've gotten and have they had a particular quality in France as opposed to the UK? Or I don't know if you've been doing some of this, sharing your work in North America or elsewhere. Uh, Any thoughts about that? The reality is that the translation in France goes to a much wider public, Mm. um, whereas the CUP book, (laughs) Hardback, does not go to a wide public in in English. So the the responses I've had to my book have been much more variable as a result. And I Mm. was invited to a few talks. I gave one in Vichy, actually, and and the response was brilliant. The room was packed. Everybody was extremely receptive, very interested, thought they hadn't really heard the story before said in that way. I think that to some extent, in terms of French academic tradition, uh, my book is much broader than others might have liked. Mm. You know, like I said, this is about the whole war, about the whole country, uh, about a group of workers that was 500,000 people. Um, It's about a lot of different things. Um, And I think that that approach... Uh, was perhaps a slightly more Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. than French. But I've had very positive responses in terms of people saying, well, actually, this story, the story of the essence have never, had never been published in this way before, mm-hmm. about the chemino under the occupation. Um, I've also had some, you know, hate mail. <laughs> mm. One person saying, you are... Uh, defending the SNCF, you know, th- saying, oh, were you paid or whatever? Uh, mm. You're not showing that they were perpetrators in the Holocaust, and on the other, saying the complete opposite, <laughs> saying uh, you deny any act of resistance and you are ju- demonizing the SNCF, saying that it deported Jews. And <laughs> both of these responses are, are incorrect readings, and they're interpretations based on, on the debates which have been happening for the past two decades, rather than a reading of my actual book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in in terms of in, in in the UK, certainly the papers I've given on theft have been really positively received, and people thinking about theft and sabotage as these ways through which we can pierce into a different kind of history of the war and of labor history as well, which is less top down. So I know that you've been busy this past year. Yes. <laughs> what about your plans for your research? What are you What are you working on now and into the future? So I feel like I've left the railway workers behind me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. Uh, I feel like it's. Uh, you know, what I, how I learned to do what I do, and yet I'm still working on trains. Huh. Uh, huh. But different ones. I'm working on something called the Gratitude Train, which is uh, in 1949. The French gifted. 52,000 objects in a, in a train. They were in, split into 49 different convoys, or sorry, into cars, convoi. And each American state received one convoy as a thank you, a gratitude for their help during and after the Second World War. Oh. And these objects were really variable. They varied from Sèvres vases to wedding dresses to children's paintings, to books, to even some photo albums from French people all over France to Americans. Um, And so my next project, so I've just won a small grant to carry out research in America, which will take me to see about a dozen state museums um, in state capitals and look at the collections of objects that they have, because all of these objects came, many of them came attached with notes from the donors, explaining a little bit of their history, etc. And What I'm starting to realize is that this gratitude train was not just a moment of generosity by some random French people to random Americans across the pond. It was a very political act by the the French and American presidents were involved in in this train. There was a lot of administration going on in both governments about how this train would be transported you know, the ceremonies that would take place in order to uh, receive it. This train was also very linked also to anti-communism. What I found was interesting was that a lot of the donors uh, from France, a few of them, had complicated histories under Vichy. And what, what I'm maybe suspecting is that these gifts 
were trying to create political ties and create political legitimacy from grassroots up between the two countries, fighting the communist tendencies in in France and Italy, which a lot of people in America, but also in France, were were in fear of. Um, So it's a history of objects. It's a history of gratitude. And it's a history about, again, a Franco-American relationship. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Are you going to take your family on a vacation <laughs> to oh, visit no. these? <laughs> that's, that's, where, that's where I leave my kids. <laughs> I just wondered, because you were talking about the trips that you take and, for work and that you bring people along. I wondered if they would come with you <laughs> for this one. No, I think maybe maybe my um, I've talked with my husband. Maybe meeting me and right. and then we do a little family holiday. But um, I think it it will have to be so intense. I mean, you know how it is with academic timetables. Sure, yeah. Well, Ludovine, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing uh, the book. No, well, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. And it's like I say, the book came out two years ago, but I've got all these memories now that are rushing back. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Roxanne. <laughs>